Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Father, what a joy it is that you live, and in that is our life and our hope and our assurance. Thank you, God, for these songs of assurance this morning, songs that remind us that uh, our hope is in you, our strength is in you, God, that, that we depend on you for everything. And uh, Lord, now as we are under your word this morning, I pray that it would refine us, mold us, equip us, encourage us. Uh, God, cause us to see you, your heart for this world, and our place in that. Thank you, God, for the privilege of being in your word this morning and singing these great songs. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I would invite you to return back to book of Acts, Acts 22. A couple things as you're getting settled in there. One is uh, yesterday, just a little note here. You might want to send Jeff Johnson a little note. He, uh, yesterday he graduated from Moody, got his master's in um, spiritual formation. So he's not here. So I'll let him know you, you applauded, but he's not here. He uh, He's on vacation this week, kind of a little celebration week, and he's going to be in Georgia this week, but, uh, but if you think about it and you want to whip him off a little thank you note, no, is it Wisconsin? Oh, it's not Georgia. Oh, see how much I know? He did graduate yesterday, right? Okay. <laughs> I got to pay attention to these conversations with Jeff. <laughs> okay, so well, he's on vaca- he is on vacation this week, but send him a little note, so... Appreciate that. And then uh, just a one little note, too. You might see our family skedaddling out of church a little quicker here today. Uh, my dad's 89th birthday is tomorrow, and a bunch of family members, my aunt who's still alive, and a bunch of people are all gathering at his house for lunch today, and so we're going to try to get out to Lombard uh, as close as we can to lunch, so that's what's happening. But today we are jumping into Acts 22, and we're going to tackle another big passage of Scripture, and uh, as we're making our way through Acts, and uh, Jim read it for us, it was a wonderful passage. I was somewhat reminded this week of this story of uh, two kids that were visiting each other's churches. One kid went to a super high church, kind of a lot of ceremonies and robes, and the other kid went to a really kind of bland church and didn't have a lot of that extra stuff, and so they, they, they went to the one kid's church, super high church, and, and the kid who wasn't used to that was asking questions. What does the smoke mean? What do the robes mean? And all these different things are going on in the service. And and, and throughout the entire service, this this friend's answering, well, here's what the smoke means. Here's what these songs mean. Here's what these prayers mean. Here's what these symbols mean. And then the next week, they went to the kids' church that was a little more straightforward. And the only thing that really happened is the pastor went up on a stage and he took his watch off and put it up on the podium and said, well, what does that mean? And the kid friend said, absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And that is today, (laughs) because we're going through Acts 22, 1 through 30, so settle in. Um, This is an incredible section. It's Paul's defense against the, uh, or actually before the Jewish leadership. He is in a a unique situation where... um, he has to defend his ministry to the Gentiles. And this particular ministry is creating a lot of tension for him. 
And I was, I was, as I was you know, contemplating this passage, I, I was thinking a little bit about uh, the history of the United States. And I was thinking about the late 1800s. And late 1800s, if you study histories, sometimes called the immigration period. You know, we like to give names to different periods. And, and one period, we, the late 1800s, early 1900s in the United States, they call it the great I- immigration period. And it was a time when people came from a majority from Europe over to the United States to get new life, to find a home, to get jobs, to get land, to just try to start over. Many were escaping tyranny. A lot of our ancestors, a lot of us in this room today, have people that came over during that period of time. And, um, and when that happened, uh, and, and they would come into the United States, they would come in through New York, and they would see the Statue of Liberty. And if you've ever seen the Statue of Liberty, it's a pretty amazing thing to see. On the Statue of Liberty is a, is a, is a saying. Many of you might be familiar with most of this saying. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuge of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift a lamp beside the golden door. Right? So the image here is come. Wherever you're coming from, you're welcome here. You know, I'm, I'm holding the lamp up high, right? holding that torch, and the point of that torch was to say, come, come, come from the nations, come in here. Whatever situation you're facing, you have a home here, you have a seat at this table. And I was thinking about that because I was thinking, Paul, in many ways, was, you know, that's an illustration of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The ministry of the Apostle Paul was to go to the world and to tell the world, listen, in Jesus is a new life. And in Jesus is a whole new way. Whatever nation you're from, whatever color your skin is, whatever problems you've had, wherever you are, tempest-tossed, whatever your situation is, we hold high a banner. But we don't have a statue of a woman holding a, a torch. You know, the, this, you know our, our statue of liberty would be a cross. And on that cross would probably say something along this line, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Everyone has a seat here. And it's a message, much like the the Statue of Liberty, it's a message to the nations. Come nations, you all have a seat at the table. And Paul would go out and he would share this message and he'd say, listen, everybody has a seat at this table. And the problem is there were some that didn't believe that. There were some who said, no, not everybody has a seat at the table. In fact, we need a couple of tables. Now, everybody can come before God, but we're not creating one table where everybody's equal. We're going to create a couple different kinds of tables. And this table over here will be for these people, and this table over here will be for these people, and this table over here will be for these people, and and we're going to divide it all up. We do not want to all be at the same table. And Paul came and he said, no, we are all before Christ seated at his table. We all have one seat at one table. And people got mad, and there was a collision. And this isn't the only time in history there's been this collision. We can see this throughout the history of the world, this collision between those who, who don't want to recognize that, 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 that in Christ everybody has a, a place. And it is our job to invite people in. It's our job to say, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come and find rest in Christ. That's, that's what we've been called to do. And there have been some throughout the history of the church, and here in this text we see it, that forgot that that's what they're called to do. And they thought it was their job to protect their table and to keep people away, to kick them out of the table and to fight against them. Paul's facing this moment. He's facing this moment. 
He's gone to the nations and he's told the Gentiles that in Christ you have all of the blessings that, that, that God promised to the nation of Israel. Gentiles, you have, you have every blessing to you. You have a seat at his table. You are no difference. There's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. There's no distinction between slave and free man. There's no distinction here. These distinctions are gone at the cross. And there are people who hate Paul for that message. They wanted to kill Paul for this message, and that's what we saw last time we were together. They were trying to kill him. He's in the temple. He's serving people in the temple, and they see him, and they say, we got to kill this guy, and he gets arrested. So now here he is. He's arrested. He asks the guard if he can address the people, and what Paul's going to do is he's going to explain to them a couple of things. He's going to explain to them that God, first of all, saved him, but in the course of that saving, he gave him a, a mission and a purpose. And it's a mission and a purpose Paul would have never sought on his own. It's one that came from God directly. Now, as we see this unfold and we see this story unfold, we're going to see something else. We're going to see how God protected Paul in the midst of this so that he could carry out this mission. And when we get to that part, I think you're going to find that really encouraging. I'm just going to leave that there. When we get there, I think you will find it encouraging and you'll find it a hopeful part of the story. But what I want us to do is I want us to dive into Paul as he defends this ministry, and he explains to the people a couple things. He explains to them that he understands their desire to protect their table because he was one like that himself. But then he wants to show them that it is the very heart of God that, that, our, that, that, that we exist to invite people to this table from the nations of the world. That's God's very heart. And that this is his purpose. This is all of our purpose. It's a purpose for Israel. It's a purpose for us. It's all of our purposes. And this is what God wants. And we're going to see how they respond to that. And I think you're going to find a lot of encouragement. So let's look at the story here. Let's jump into it. Then at the end, we'll kind of point some observations that we can pull from this. Let's begin. Let's look at how God, as Paul addresses these people, kind of outlines his, his, his calling, his salvation, how God saved them and what God called them to do. Look at verse 1. It says, brothers and fathers. So Paul is addressing these people. And he, and he begins his address by saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Now here's what's going on. He's been arrested. Right? They, they grabbed him out of the temple. They beat him. The Roman soldiers came in. They, they stopped the, the beating. The Roman soldiers have to protect Paul, and they throw him into a barracks, and, 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 and they say, What is going on here? And Paul says, hey, can I address the people? And the, the guard says, sure. So Paul goes out, and he speaks to them. And he's speaking to them in Hebrew, which would get their attention, because only the serious Jews spoke in Hebrew. In that day, you would have either spoke Greek or Aramaic. Not a lot of people were speaking Hebrew. Hebrew had not been the dominant language in Israel, with the exception of the really devout Jews. So the fact that he is now addressing them in Hebrew shows he is not a slouch. He is a, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the fact that he's speaking Hebrew. Gets their attention. And I want you to notice how he addresses them. Oops, sorry. He addresses them by saying, brothers and fathers. Interesting words. It's the most respectful words you could use. Identifying them as brothers. He's identifying himself with them. Fathers. He's addressing the older uh, leaders in the crowd, 
And what I find fascinating about that is that just minutes before this, these guys were trying to beat him to death. Paul is standing there probably with black eyes and blood on his face. Clothes are probably torn. Right? I mean, he has just been pulled out of a mob. And at that moment, I mean, you think about it. You think about it. I mean, here's, here, this is really silly, but just go with this for a minute here. You know, when, whenever I fly down to Texas, I fly Southwest Airlines. Have you ever, anybody ever flown Southwest? They give you a number, and you've got to stand in line, right? That number. And that's how you board the plane. And so if you're like A36, you stand there and slot little 36 is A. And, and every once in a while, somebody uh, had forgotten their numbers, right? They don't know that, you know, like if you have uh, 40, then you don't stand in front of the person who has 36, Every once in a while, somebody with a 40 will stand in front of me if I have 36. And like, there's this moment of like major injustice that I feel inside, right? Oh, you have 40. You're supposed to be like, you're four people behind me. What are you doing? And you have to kind of calm down. And then you think, how silly is this? This is like absolutely the dumbest thing in the world. And yet, there's that little tinge inside, like, you're supposed to be behind me. It's like kindergarten, you know? I was standing here. Right? I mean, you, you get that, that feeling inside of you. I can't imagine what it would be like to have a bunch of people on a false accusation because they accused Paul of bringing a guy into the temple that he didn't bring. And they drag him out, and they're beating him. They're trying to kill him. It takes Roman soldiers to pull him off, and then he's going to stand in front of these people, and he's not going to stand there and go, now you rebellious Jews! Right? The anger that could come over. Instead... He says, brothers, fathers. And he addresses them in their language with respect. I can't imagine what he was thinking at that moment. It's an amazing moment. And they all get quiet. And he says this, he says, hear the defense that I make before you. You know that I don't normally like to point out Greek words, but I'm going to do that here because the word that he uses is apologia. Here are the apologetics that I put before you. Apologetics, apologia is the idea of a, of, a, of a reasoned thought. I want to reason with you. I want to explain to you what's going on here and what you're seeing. Now, now, now the, notice what he does. He first thing I think he does is he identifies with them. Look at verse 3. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarshish of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear, wit, bear me witness. From them I received letters to brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, you need to know something about me. Let me tell you a little bit about my past. I'm born in Tarshish. That's a big deal. Tarshish is a highly educated city. So, so he's not some cult leader from the woods. He was born in a very respected city. But he was raised in Jerusalem. That's what he says. But brought up in this city. He's in Jerusalem. Brought up in Jerusalem. 
Not only that, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the grandson of Rabbi Halal. If you know Rabbi Halal, Rabbi Halal was the writer of, of much of the Mishnah and other Jewish writings, today considered the great Jewish theologian. Gamaliel, his grandson, was a brilliant theologian, head of the Sanhedrin, the leader, the guy. And Paul saying, listen, when I went to school, where I went to school was at Gamaliel's school. So, so I'm born in this really prominent city to prominent parents. I was raised in Jerusalem, and I learned at the feet of Gamaliel. It's a huge deal. Not only that, Gamaliel taught me according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. I was not raised a liberal. I was all about the law. I followed it to the letter. Not only that, I'm just, I was just as zealous as you are today. And then he wants to give his zealous credentials. I persecuted the way, meaning the church. That's what they called the church. I, I persecuted this church to death. I bound people. I delivered them to prison. I went after both men and women. If I saw somebody who somebody was with Christ, I had no problem tying them up, dragging them to prison, and asking for the Roman government to kill them. That's how zealous I was. I was just like you guys. What you're doing to me, I did to others, is what he's saying. This is how I identify with you. And then he says this. You can even check, verse 5. He's saying you can even check with the high priest and the elders that I actually asked for, for, for legal uh, credentials to go after people. That's how I was. They can bear witness. These guys are still alive. And I received these letters to go to Damascus because I was going to go grab some Christians. And I was going to bring them to, to Jerusalem to tie them up, punish them. Guys, I, I did ex I'm doing exactly what you did. But now he's going to explain what happened. And what I want you to notice as he explains this is that Paul's instincts and Paul's direction is exactly the same direction as, as the people that he's talking to. He's on the same page. He was on the same path. But now God stopped this path. Notice what God does in verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you'll you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all of the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. Now, most, a lot of us are familiar with the story of Paul's conversion. But one thing to keep in mind, first of all, is that Paul is also called Saul. That confuses you in the text. Saul is the Hebrew name of Paul, which is Greek. Same name in Greek, you'd call somebody Paul. In Hebrew, you'd call that person Saul. Right? It's just whether or not you want to call him in Hebrew or Greek. Paul, because he's referring to himself to Jews, is using Saul. 
when he talks to the Gentiles, he calls himself Paul. Same name. And here he is now. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest people. And notice, do you notice what time of day it was? It was noon. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you know one thing. That at noon, the sun is like right up top center. And it is shining down bright. I mean, it is bright. Bright, bright, bright sun. If you've ever been to any region of the world or even just moving down closer to the equator, noontime, the sun is right at the top. And it is so bright at noon that, that, that it's hard to see when that sun is barreling down. So a bright light shines at noon that is so bright that it overcomes the existing brightness. This is a major light, is the point here. The miracle of this, one of the sides of the miracle of this, is that God is shining this light at noon. Paul wants to make you under, understand this is a, an incredible light, and it wasn't just in his eyes. It shone around him like a spotlight, which must have been incredibly bright if it's happening at noontime. And, of course, this voice comes out of heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people, my children? Why are you persecuting me? Right? You're in Christ. If you are in Christ, what happens to you happens to him. This is why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, as people persecute you, Jesus is going to come back and pay retribution to them. Justice will be served when the persecution comes. But he's saying, this is, you, you've done this against me, which is basically saying Jesus is alive. The resurrection's occurred. Jesus isn't dead. He, he, he rose from the dead. He's alive. And so Paul, I was encountering the resurrected Jesus, and he's like, what do I do? What do I do? How, I, what am I supposed to do? But, but before we get this answer, Luke kind of gives us a little bit of a story that tells us that, and, and, and Paul wants us to see this, and he wants the people who are listening to him to hear this, that the guys that were with him were witnesses of this moment. Now, why would you say this? Well, if I were going to stand up before a crowd of people and tell them a story of what happened, if it really did happen, I'd have no problem pointing out witnesses to it. They could go find these guys who were the traveling companions of Paul. They very well could be in the room there with Paul. Who knows? But he's basically said, this happened. You can find the guys. They saw it. They even heard the voice. They couldn't understand it, but they heard it. This really did happen. They really did lead him to Damascus. And they really did come across this guy, Ananias. And this guy, Ananias, really did talk to him. And he really did come and said, receive your sight, and his sight really did come back to him. And so now Paul is there. He's in Damascus. He's got witnesses of this moment. Ananias has talked to him, and his sight has returned, and now the first thing Paul sees is Ananias. Now Paul wants to make sure that everybody understands that Ananias isn't some fly-by-night guy. So the guy that God sends is a guy who's a devout Jew who's well-spoken of. That's important little note there. Paul's trying to make the point, right? He's making his apologetics. He's saying, listen, the guy who came and, uh, uh, and, and, and prayed with me, the guy that, that the Lord sent my way is a respected Jew. You can go to Damascus and you can look up his credentials because he's well-spoken of by everybody. So here's, this is the guy, right? So this is, this is all being done in line with the Jewish customs even. 
a devout Jewish man comes who's well spoken of. This is not some crazy story of somebody out in the woods getting some kind of vision from God. It's all happening out in the open with respected people. So now the people are tracking with this story. So far, nothing is too offensive to them. And in verse 14, Ananias now is going to talk to Paul, and he says, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So he's saying, listen, the God of our fathers has said that you are going to know something. Okay, You're going you're to know his will. Now, we're not catching what it is here in, in, in this account, but we know what it is as we've looked at the ministry of Paul. His will was to go to the nations and to tell the Gentiles they have a seat at the table and they're going to inherit every blessing that's in the Bible. That's the will of God. And he's saying, now listen, you get to know his will. Not only that, you're going to see the Messiah. You're going to hear his voice. You're, you're, going to be a, you're, you're going to be a witness of the resurrected Messiah, which basically makes him an apostle, one of the 12 apostles. So he gets to join the 12. And you're going to be a witness to him of everyone, of all that he's going to instruct you. So now what you've got to do is be baptized. Now, why this baptism thing? The reason why this baptism thing is here is for a reason. Baptism was always a sign that you were confessing your sins and needing to be washed clean. Even in Israel it was. It was what they called consecration. When Israel had sinned and God was going to do something big in their midst, they would say, go confess your sins and make yourself clean. Now, Paul is basically a zealous Jew who's living what appears to be a devout life to the law, and, and every Jew in that room would think, I don't need to be cleansed because I am not only so righteous, I'm following God's law, and I'm pushing out all the evil that's around me. That's how righteous I am. And yet Jesus' message to Paul was, you need to repent because you're not with me. You, you, you're still a sinner. Your righteous deeds in the law did not justify you before me. And so you need to confess. You need to be baptized. You need to call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. And this is the moment when Paul would say, this is when I was made clean. This is when my heart was changed. This is when I really became righteous. So now he's saying that my adherence to the law did not make me righteous. It didn't. This did. Now let's look at what happens here. So Paul now, after this big moment in his life, notice verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. So now where does Paul go after he gets baptized? He goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back to the temple. It's what he knows. It's where his instincts led him. His instincts led him to the temple. He's a Jew. He's gonna, now he believes Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. He's praying. 
God puts him in a trance. Jesus actually speaks to him, and Jesus says, get out. You need to get out. The Jews are not going to accept your message. Now, this is where the, you know, the Jews listening to this are going to start going, well, what are you saying here, Paul? It's a bit offensive here. They're not going to accept you, and so you need to get out of here. Now, Paul goes, uh, Jesus, the slight problem with your plan, you realize how many of these Christians I've killed? <laughs> you know, there is no way that they want me. And I, I go walk into one of their meetings, hey, guys, you know, what are they going to do? They're, you know, they're going to see me and run. You realize I have no friends? Like, the way isn't going to accept me. I mean, even when their guy, their leader that they all chose, Stephen, right? The people chose Stephen. I was the one holding everybody's coat saying, kill the guy. They know me. I can't go to the church. They would not accept me. And God says, no, you're still missing it. I'm sending you to the nations. That's where you're going. You're going out to the nations, buddy. Whoa. Who would have ever... Paul, this thought would have not even been on Paul's mind. It wasn't on Paul's mind. When, when God told him, get out, the only place he could think of going from the temple was to the church. Just narrow. We don't naturally, instinctively think of the nations when we think about walking with God. We don't. Our, our thought when we walking with God is just ourselves. It's just the, the struggle we have as Christians. If I, if I talk about being a disciple of Jesus, I'm always just talking about my own prayer life and my own reading of the Bible and my own growth and my own problems. The last thing that comes to my mind is who in the world needs to hear about Jesus when I talk about discipleship or following Jesus or being, you know, being one of his. The nations does not come to our brain. and It's not coming to Paul's mind. First place is the temple. Second place he thinks of when he says get out is, is the church. God says, no, the nations is where I want you to go. This is your place. Get out. Do you understand? I, I rose from the dead to impart my spirit into you so that you guys would cover the earth with my glory so that the nations would hear and be brought in because Jesus is standing there like the Statue of Liberty saying, come, come, nations, come. You have a seat at my table. It's hard for us to get there. Hard for Paul. Paul's trying to tell these people, this was not my idea. I wasn't even tracking this way. First time he told me to go, I just was thinking of hanging out with James in the church in Jerusalem. I wasn't thinking of the nations. But he says it. Now, look at what happens in verse 22. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The moment he said the Jews wouldn't accept it, and that his mission was to the Gentiles, that was it. He crossed the line. They could not get it in their brain that the Gentiles have a seat at the table. They could not accept that they want two tables. They want two tables. They want a Jewish table, and they want a Gentile table. They don't want one table. It's just human instinct. We want two tables. And so the moment he says, I was called to go out there, in their eyes, he became defiled. He became a liberal. He became a sellout. He's taking and watering down 
the truth of God. He's, the law is being watered down. As soon as you start thinking that way, you're watering this thing down. We cease to be Jewish. We will no longer be Jewish. And so they say, away with this guy. Notice, they don't just say away. Away with such a fellow from the earth. Like, you know, if they had bombs, they would have been saying, blow him up. Like, this is how mad they were. I mean, they, they want him. This guy does not deserve his next breath. He should be killed. Okay. So there's Paul. It's calling. The thing I want you to catch out of this calling is that this mission to the nations was not in Paul's mind. It wasn't in his Paul's, Paul's heart. It wasn't in his instinct. It is the will of God. It's the will of God. Paul, apart from having God intervene, Paul would have been exactly where those guys are. That's what he's saying. Would have been the exact same place as you. In fact, that would have been a better version of you. Right? I would have been way more zealous than you. Okay, now, let's look at how God protects Paul as we see this story kind of wrap up here in this chapter. Because this protection is pretty, pretty cool. Look at verse 23. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, I mean, this is a big deal, right? They're shouting, they're ripping their clothes, they're throwing dust. This is all like a way of rejection. It's all like symbols of rejection. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Good Roman way to do it. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Okay, now you say, what is going on here? Why are the Romans doing this? Remember, Paul's speaking Hebrew. And the Roman soldiers don't know Hebrew. So he's standing up in front of the crowd speaking Hebrew. They're starting to shout, but they don't know what Paul said. They have no idea what Paul said. Now, Roman soldiers, they just have one tool in their toolbox. Pain. That's it. Right? So no like question like, hey, Paul, what did you say? It was more like, stretch him out, beat him until he starts talking. And that's what they do. They grab him and they stretch him out, and they're going to flog him, which if you know what the flogging was, it was a leather strap that had nine pieces of leather on it. Embedded on each piece of leather were, 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 were of bone. Bone and glass were all embedded onto the, onto the nine straps. And they would take the person and, and stretch them over sometimes a rock or sometimes over pieces of wood, but they would stretch their backs out so it was nice and tight. And, and then they would just start whipping. And trust me, man, you will confess to killing Kennedy if they start whipping you, right? I mean, it's just that intense, right? I mean, I, just the thought of it. All right, I did it all. Okay? It's all my fault. I shot Reagan, I, Kennedy, it's all me. I did it all. Just don't hit me with that thing. And that's what they want to have happen. So the soldiers just immediately just jump into soldier action, grab Paul, stretch him out. This happened in all in seconds. And Paul just says, hey, quick question before this begins. How lawful is it to beat a Roman citizen? If you're a Roman soldier, you stop when you hear that. And I'll tell you why. It's against the law to beat a Roman citizen. So what happens to you if you're a Roman soldier and you violate the law? You're going to get beaten and executed. That's how they made sure the soldiers followed the law. So this is like hands off. Whoop. What are you saying? What are you getting at, Paul? So that's where this is in. Look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, 
what are we about to do here? This man's a citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. Now you might go, what is that little exchange about? Okay, obviously they need to figure out what to do because they, right now they have already violated the law. They got Paul stretched over this thing. He's bound. So he's already, whatever they got him, whether it's a rock or whether they've got him on a stick, sometimes they would put him around a big stick, whatever it is, he's bound. They go to the leader. The leader comes over and says, uh, you citizen? Paul goes, yep. Then the leader says, I purchased my citizenship. Here's how much I paid for it. Now you say, what, what's that about? You could buy Roman citizenship. And, and remember that you know, Rome is conquering nations. As people are coming in from the nations, um, they can become citizens if they buy it for enough money. Many of the soldiers are from other nations. Right? They're not all Italian. And so sometimes the leaders would purchase their citizenship. And so he's trying to figure out how much Paul paid for his because there's no way this Jewish guy would be a citizen like without paying, paying for it. And, and how much you paid for it kind of determined your caste. They had a little caste system set up by how much you paid for your citizenship. And so this guy's kind of saying, this is how much I paid. He wants to figure out how much Paul paid. Where are you in this so I can figure out my, my place? He's posturing is what he's doing. reason why he's posturing is he's in trouble. He just needs to figure out how much trouble he's in. Okay, because if he paid more than Paul, then he's not in that much trouble. If Paul paid more than him, he's in a little more trouble. The worst case scenario is if Paul's a natural citizen. That's the place you don't want to be. So he says, here's how much I paid. And Paul says, yeah, mine came at birth. <laughs> All of a sudden, notice verse 29. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, we have to speculate what's happening here, but the bottom line is, as soon as he said he was a, a citizen by birth, they now are in danger of execution. So when something really bad is happening and you're a coward, what do you do? You run, right? That's like the chief qualification of a coward. Run. Get out of there as fast as possible. So they literally leave. They leave him bound. This is how scared they are. They're not thinking someone should untie him. They just get out. And I could imagine the conversation. Okay, what are we going to say here? we got to figure this out. You can imagine them. I mean, I don't, I'm speculating, but what would you do if you were these guys? You'd be meeting with these people trying to get your story straight because you are in a boatload of trouble. They come up with a plan. The plan is, let's take this out of the Roman government altogether. Let's return it back to Israel. That's their plan, and that's what verse 30 is about. You know what? We still have no idea what Paul said. We don't know if Paul broke the law and what he said. But we don't really want to deal with this in a Roman way anymore. So their plan was, let's get this out of the Roman court system and get it back into a Jewish court system, and maybe this thing will just go away. So they unbind him, and they bring him before the chief priests. And 
Next week, Lord willing, we'll see what he says. But here's what I want you to see as we kind of wrap this account up, because it's a pretty amazing account. And there's kind of two things that really struck me in, in this story. The first thing that struck me was, was the depth of God's heart for the world. It struck me because it's something we don't, like even Paul is saying, I didn't get it. As much as he knew the law, as much as he was grounded in the 39 books of the Old Testament, as much as he had studied it and, and memorized it, and as much as God said 900 or so times in the Old Testament that he wanted his glory to be made known to the nations. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of times. Even the text that Matt read this morning concluded that his glory would be made known to the nations. Right? That, that God just hundreds and hundreds of times said this, and yet he missed it completely. But it's God's heart. And even when God kind of saved Paul, Paul's first instinct was to go insular, was just to go into the temple. And then as God's pushing him, he says, okay, well, I can't really go to the church, so where do I go? Because he's still thinking in an, in an inside eyes in mentality. And he's like, no, I'm calling you to the nations. And yet that's a struggle. It's a huge struggle. But Paul's trying to say, this is God's heart. I would not have gone there on my own. My instincts would not lead me there. Even after salvation, my instincts didn't lead me there. And even, even when God was pushing me there, I'm arguing with him and, because I'm missing the point and God is pushing me out and he's the one that pushed me out there. Why? This is God's heart. Hundreds of times in the Old Testament, God made it clear that he wanted his glory to be known in the nations. Dozens of times Jesus said in the New Testament, you've got to take this gospel out. You're worthless and wicked if you don't. Jesus' final words was to go make disciples of the nations. This is, this, is, this is the point, right? The point isn't that I just become all that I can be so that I would just be a really cool Christian and then die and become even a cooler one. The point is that there, God wants his glory manifested on his earth among the people that he created. And he wanted his glory to be made known that they would all have the same, a seat at the same table so the angels would look upon that and go, wow, how in the world could you unite what the world could never unite? How could you put people from these countries in the same place and let them live as one? And the angels, Paul said in Ephesians 3, get glory when they see us. They glorify God. It's God's heart. It's incredible. This is what Paul is saying. This is what God drove me to. But the second thing that really amazed me about this text is that God not only calls Paul to the mission, but he used Paul's past to carry out the mission. He used his past. It's amazing to think that his Roman citizenship, being born in Tarsus as a natural-born citizen, will become the very thing that God is going to use to allow him to be at the heart of the Roman government to proclaim the gospel. And that's the part that I find totally encouraging. That God is preparing us for the purposes for which he made us. And that preparation began at our birth, which means that we can look back on events and things and say and realize, man, God allows these things to happen to leverage us for his purposes. 
You know, it's amazing. I mean, you know, when you start praying, God, use me. Use me to make your name known. Doors open that connect to the things that are about you. I remember praying a couple years ago, God, I want to just have a presence in this community. Lord, our offices are downtown. Can you give us a presence? Give me a presence in the community. All of a sudden, get a phone call. Sycamore police needs a chaplain. I walk into the police department. You know what? I served in the military. I served in security in the military. I fired a gun before. I put handcuffs on people. I've arrested people. I walk in. I have a seat at the table. I don't have to jump over weirdness that oftentimes police officers might have with a chaplain walking in and saying, you know, you don't know our life. You're a holy roller or whatever. And say, listen, I put handcuffs on people. I fired a weapon before. I've done your job. In the military, a little different. And all of a sudden, that past connects to a mission. And that little experience 30 years ago in my life becomes a leveraged open door for the gospel. And the opportunities to share the gospel have been immense. But it's that past, that event 30 years ago, that becomes a reality today. I find that encouraging because your life's not a mistake. Your life's not a mistake. I wouldn't run from your past. I would definitely say, God, use it for your mission. And, and, and maybe the prayer for us is to say, God, how do you want me to make your name known and leverage whatever you need to leverage in my life to do that? Experiences, tr- trauma, negative things. When all of a sudden it starts getting leveraged for the kingdom, it all starts making sense. It all starts making sense. Your past, your parents, and your sins don't define you. The glory of the cross is that God leverages all of that to carry out his work, to carry out his work for the kingdom of God. So, why don't we pray? And I think one of the things I think we should be praying for is saying, God, it's a simple prayer. God, use me. Use me however you want to use me for your kingdom, and then just see how God starts to leverage your life towards that end because this is his heart. This is his purpose. We don't naturally go there, but it is what he has revealed. Let's pray that now together. Father, I thank you for uh, this incredible account. And Lord, we, our instincts don't lead us to these ends oftentimes. Our, our, my instincts lead me to stay home, to disengage, my instincts after a long day is not to go talk to a neighbor, but to, to just lock myself in my house. Lord, I don't think that way, but yet I'm nudged by your spirit. I'm nudged by your word to recognize that you have left us here to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to make disciples, to make your name known. Lord, you push us into these places. You've revealed this is your will. And so, Lord, thank you that you have set us up to serve you exactly the way you want us to be served. You've given us everything we need today to make your name known. That the events of the past are not liabilities, but they're strength and power and leverage for your kingdom. There are some here, God, I know that look back on events in their home life growing up and have been hard for them. And yet, Lord, show them that those events have a purpose behind them. 
There are some here who feel like maybe they've done too many bad things in their life. But yet even as they've repented and embraced you, that opens a door for them to leverage that for the kingdom. There are others that have been raised in great homes and they're ready to serve and they've got a a boatload of things to bring to the table, Lord. And I pray that you would propel them in, in, in in an aggressive manner to be ready to serve you and to to recognize that life isn't just about us and our growth. Life is about your glory and your light being shined, that we don't want to hide it under a bushel or hide it under a, you know, a lampstand, God, that we let it shine bright on a hill. God, thank you that you use these things for your kingdom and your glory. Thank you, God, that we have a place and that we all have a seat at your table. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.